right, we are back. We sometimes do obituaries on this program because, well, we just think we should. There are many people whose lives are worthy of mention. And we think one such example would be that of Phil Everly. Phil Everly passed away earlier this week, and I'm very pleased to be able to say that I did see uh, a performance by the Everly Brothers. I was going to say they're the opening act, but I think they were the incorporated act in, in, a, in a concert by Simon and Garfunkel in Oakland uh, some years back. As I recall, they actually invited the Everly Brothers out to sing a couple numbers with them. So they were not so much, I don't think, the opening act as, as, as part of the act. And it was, a, it was a marvelous thing to be able to see those guys up on stage. As great as Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel are, and they're pretty great, the Everly Brothers held their own. Note of their obituary, Phil and Don Everly helped draw the blueprint of rock and roll in the late 50s and 60s with a high harmony that captured the yearning and angst of a nation of teenage baby boomers looking for a way to express themselves beyond the simple platitudes of the pop music of the day. The Beatles, earlier in their career, once referred to themselves as the English Everly Brothers. And Bob Dylan once said, we owe these guys everything. They started it all. The Everly's hit recordings included the then-titillating Wake Up Little Susie and the universally identifiable Bye Bye Love, each featuring their twined voices with lyrics that mirrored the fatalism of country music. These sounds and ideas would be warped by their devotees into a new kind of music that would ricochet around the world. In all, their careers spanned five decades, though they performed separately between 1973 and 1983. In their heyday between 57 and 62, they had 19 top 40 hits. Their breakup was apparently pretty dramatic. During a concert at Knott's Berry Farm in, 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 here in California, Phil Everly threw his guitar down and walked off. But luckily for all of us, they got back together again 10 years later. I was excited to be watching TV a few nights ago and see uh, former Radio Parallax guest Steve Squires talking about uh, the Spirit and Opportunity Rovers uh, traipsing about on the Martian surface. Very cool. The Opportunity Rover, amazingly, is still alive, and it's been joined by the Curiosity Rover and the Gale Crater. We expect some cool signs to come out of that. And although the Kepler spacecraft is kaput, the analysis of the data that was gathered over years is, is turning out to be pretty darned interesting. Piece this week from the Washington Post by Joel Achenbach notes that uh, in looking at these different solar systems, I guess star systems, uh, planetary systems around other stars, we're finding a lot of super-Earths and mini-Neptunes, which represent sizes unlike anything found in our solar system. To quote from the piece, As astronomers peer deep into our galaxy, studying starlight for the telltale twinkle of orbiting planets, they're seeing something most unexpected— most planets detected so far appear to be smaller than Neptune, but larger than Earth, in a size range that does not exist in our solar system. Here, we have four rocky planets, of which Earth is the largest, and two gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn. Uranus and Neptune, sometimes lumped with Jupiter and Saturn, are sometimes labeled ice giants. They have rocky cores with gaseous envelopes. But notes the piece, astronomers have found that most planets detected around distant stars are what you might call off-size worlds, as if rounded up from an outlet mall. In fact, I did not know this, and I'm quite surprised by this, apparently 85% of the planets that have been found by the Kepler spacecraft are either mini Neptunes or super-Earths, indeterminate-sized planets that we don't have anything to compare to in our solar system. These 
Extrasolar planets seem to follow a pronounced pattern. Up to about twice the diameter of Earth, they are rocky and dense. But beyond that, the average density plummets dramatically, suggesting that the bigger worlds are enveloped in gas. These observations match the theory of planet formation that we have, in which there's a limit to how large a purely rocky world can get. Shovel more and more dirt onto a big rocky planet doesn't get bigger, but rather compresses because of gravity. And of course, we can speculate about life on those planets, but uh, that's just purely speculation at this point. But they say there's a lot of data still to be analyzed, and a lot of planets are going to emerge from that data, and and we're going to talk about that when they do. Got two other science topics to talk about, both of which coming from the New Scientist end of year edition. The first talked about the idea of making cheese from bacteria taken off different parts of the human body. Talked about a woman at UCLA named Christina Agapakis, described as a synthetic biologist, who at one point sat with four globs of cheese before her, which had been cultured using bacteria taken off of, <laughs> off of our bodies. But the thing is, there's like 300 different types of cheese in the world, and there's a certain culture bacterial culture that uh, maybe fungal, and I don't know enough about the food science here, but there are certainly organisms that contribute to the cheese becoming what it is. I know that uh, a, type of, a type of bacteria that produces propionic acid is what gives us Swiss cheese. The propionic acid bacteria apparently produce a lot of gas, and the gas makes the holes inside the Swiss cheese. So this, this shouldn't seem all that weird if you know a little science even though admittedly they're taking it to extremes here by just sort of randomly taking a swab out of someone's, you know, armpit or nose and mixing that up with cheese curds. But I got to tell you, for the various types of cheeses we have in the world, I'm pretty sure that somewhere along the way uh, there was some happy mixing of, uh, of the bacterial cultures that were probably on a person or, or on a person's tools that got mixed up with the food to create the unique product that we all uh, we all know and love. But the piece notes that, uh, that Agapakis is on a mission to change our ideas about the role of microbes in food production. They note that she and other researchers joined chefs, food producers, and even a nun who argued that our attitude to bacteria and food is far too prissy. It's about understanding that we have allies as well as foes in the microbial world. Peace notes that reinventing the bacterium's public image is no mean feat. Contemporary culture, especially in advertising, is geared toward a ruthless eradication of germs. And even when they talk about the good bacteria and probiotic drinks, they're advertised as sanitized versions of, uh, of, of the biological reality out there. They also cite an example of a woman named Noella Marcellino. I guess she's a nun at the Abbey of Regina Laudis in Connecticut. She's been uh, been making cheese uh, for some time, and she locked horns with the FDA a decade ago after the FDA insisted they only use pasteurized milk and they aged their cheeses at least 60 days to kill off bad bugs. But it was noted that these regulations also wipe out the beneficial bacteria that give certain cheeses their flavor. Apparently, Marcellina went out and got a microbiology doctorate degree ran some experiments and showed the inspector at the FDA that the cheese from the steel vat was prone to E. coli contamination, but not so from cheese that came from a barrel. She told the New Yorker that good bacteria were growing in the wood, and this community staved off nasty bacteria while contributing 
to the cheese's unique taste. I'm glad to see we're getting a more subtle appreciation of the good that bacteria do and fungi do and how important they are to, to good human health. The piece by Ronald Fisher concludes by noting that a range of recent studies has shown that bodily microbes do everything from regulate hormones to promote happiness. Mycobacterium vacae, for example, triggers an immune response that causes a release of serotonin, which boosts our mood. Now, one question I have that the piece doesn't answer is, what kind of foul bacteria produces feta cheese? Because I do have a problem understanding why people think that's particularly edible. But that's a story for another day. Final item, we all think that uh, snowflakes are these beautiful six-sided crystals, right? I mean, that's what we're, we were taught in school. I mean, the image of what a snowflake looks like is, is everywhere. It's on, you know, Christmas cards to, uh, to sweaters to shop windows. Well, here's a shocker. You might be surprised to discover that the vast majority of snowflakes look nothing like this. Apparently, the classic image of a snowflake can be traced back to homeschooled farmer Wilson Snowflake Bentley of Vermont. When uh, Snowflake Bentley was 15, he started peering down on his mother's microscope and and then began photographing what he saw among these snowflakes. Well, even early on, in fact, as early as 1892, a German meteorologist, Gustav Hellmann, asked his associate to photograph snowflakes. His his images showed imperfect, irregular specimens. Hellman later accused Bentley of fraud, and they argued for decades. Well, the article by Helen Pitcher, Hellman claimed he had mutilated the outlines, and Bentley's defense of his methods is apparently not very reassuring. He said, A true scientist wishes above all to have his photographs as true to nature as possible, and if retouching will help in this respect, then it is fully justified. Well, the piece shows numerous high-speed camera photographs of actual snowflakes as they're falling. And boy, are they a motley crew of different shapes. The piece also notes that perfect six-sided snowflakes do exist. They are, however, extremely rare and only form when conditions are perfect. And apparently, even under perfect conditions, only about one in a thousand come out as these perfect six-siders. And we're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan from somewhere out in the Caribbean. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound just watch your bandit run. Keep your foot hard on the pedal. Some never mind them brakes. Let it all hang out because we got to run to make. The boys are thirsty in Atlanta and there's beer in Texarkana. We'll bring it back no matter what it takes Eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking Are we gonna do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there I'm eastbound, just watch your bandit run